that, let me have you open with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 2. As we move through the first book of the Minor Prophets, it opens with one of the most heartbreaking, one of the most shocking, one of the most gut-wrenching pictures in our entire Bible. We introduced in chapter 1 the idea that we get the overview of the whole book in a single chapter. We're introduced to the human players, Hosea, a man who is faithful, who is called to love and join himself and bind himself to a woman who is not, and her name is Gomer. Gomer is not satisfied with the love, with the undivided attention, with the provision of her husband. She goes and she looks for favor in the arms of other men, and that is a living, breathing, visible picture of Israel's spiritual state. Although God loved them, although God called them, although God established them as a nation, although God provided for their every need, although God secured them and prospered them, they were not satisfied to worship God alone. They chased after the idolatry of the nations around them, and so they are pictured as spiritual adulterers. And because God is holy, sin has to be judged. That marriage then between Hosea and Gomer produced children, and children whose names were given to be constant reminders of what was coming. Jezreel, looking back at the bloodshed of Jehu and forward to the bloodshed and defeat that would come at the hands of Assyria. Lo Ruhama, no mercy. For 200 years, Israel had existed in a consistent state of sin. Wicked rulers, wicked people, failed worship, and for 200 years, God waited. He called them, he warned them, and now the mercy is over. And judgment and justice are coming. And lo ami, and that's really the most terrible name of the three because that means not my people. Those people who were called not only to be in fellowship with him, but those people that were called to be his treasured possession from among all the nations have refused him. And so now he will refuse to be known as their God. And that should have been the final word. That really should be the end of the story. But it's not. Because God is merciful. And we're given this picture of restoration that's coming. Physical restoration with numerous people a restoration to the land, not just a unity again between Judah and Israel, but this union that happens under one head, under one king and ruler that the people as a whole bind themselves to in faithfulness again. And as we move into chapter 2 today, we're going to see something that is going to become very, very familiar as we go through the Minor Prophets, and that's that they write in cycles. He said chapter 1 is kind of the whole book in summary. As we move into chapter 2 and chapter 3, you're going to see that if you put chapter 2 and chapter 3 together, once again, it's the whole book in summary. And then as you go through the rest of the book, it's a much longer view of the whole thing again. So we get it, and then we get it again, and then we get it in broad strokes all the way through the last part of the book. And again, you're going to see that several times in the Minor Prophets. But today, we're going to open up chapter 2, and what we're going to see essentially is God's case against Israel. Like the divine judge and the prosecuting attorney, he is going to say, here is the evidence presented for Israel's condemnation. Uh, It's going to be a hard look at sin and its consequences. So if you're not there already, find your way to Hosea chapter 2. And today we're going to be in 2, verses 2 to 13, but I want to read just the first couple of verses to highlight where we're going. Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 2, this is what God's word says, contend with your mother, contend. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. 
Let her put away her harlotry from her face, her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as on the day she was born. I will make her like a wilderness, make her like a desert land, and I will slay her with thirst. I will have no compassion on her children, because they are children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Let's pray. Lord, the words that are uncomfortable to read are easy to skip over. There are difficult themes, difficult pictures, uh, made more difficult by the fact that there are real lives behind them, and made even more difficult by the fact that they talk about sin and what sin is and what it does. Lord, I pray that as we come to your word that you would open our eyes so that we behold wonderful things, but how can we see wonderful things in difficult passages? Lord, help us to see the beauty of who you are, your holiness, your perfection. Lord, let us see the terror of sin, because it's only in recognizing how bad our sin is that we see our desperate need for a Savior. And then, Lord, how beautiful it is to see that you have provided the means of reconciliation and restoration. And so, Lord, we look to you. We turn our eyes to you, the God of comfort and strength, the God of justice and holiness. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So if you've watched any kind of movie over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so, you know that the idea of the courtroom drama is very, very popular. The lines from those movies have kind of built their way into our popular culture. And if I were to say something like, I want the truth, most of you would be able to say very quickly, you can't handle the truth. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you know the scene. And I think we like those scenes and those movies, uh, not just because they're particularly well done, because let's face it, some of them aren't, but I think because being made in the image of God, we, we long for a sense of justice. We want to see right happen and restored. Now, because of sin, we are more than willing to put justice aside when it benefits us. I completely understand that. But at the heart of it, we love to see things made right. We like to see the defense spin some tale of lies and intrigue to kind of obscure the truth. And then we love to see the brilliant young lawyer kind of undo all of that with a closing argument that just kind of brings everyone to their knees. It feels right. Now I want you to look at Hosea 2, verse 2. Contend with your mother. Contend. For she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That is not simply a heartbroken plea of a father calling after his estranged wife. Although it is heartbreaking, this is real. Understand that is a legal contention. That is a legal declaration. That is law language. Here's the case. And heartbreakingly, it's a father calling his children to witness and testify against the unfaithfulness of their mother. Children, see what your mother has done. Find the fault in what she is doing. Contend with your mother. Contend. And here's my case. Here's my plea. Here's my declaration. She is not my wife, and I'm not her husband. Now, at some point, you've heard in Song of Solomon that beautiful phrase in Song of Solomon 6.3, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. You need to see the intertextual opposite there. This is not I am my beloved's and he is mine. This is she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That's the heartbreaking result 
of not physical adultery in marriage, although that is the picture between Hosea and Gomer, but between Israel and the God that she has abandoned. See, in our passage today, God is going to make his case against Israel. And uh, in legal terms, her failure is proven beyond reasonable doubt. And so here's the first element of his case. Israel has been an unfaithful people. And in the rest of verse 2, we kind of see that charge take shape. Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. She has committed harlotry, adultery. And the horrible picture is that this is not a one-time thing. This is not a subdued, uh, accidental, or unintentional encounter. But the picture and the language that's used is this is upfront, this is brazen, this is in your face, and this is constant. And from the human side of this, again, we don't know the details, but what can we put together? That at this point, the children are old enough not only to understand what their mother has done, but to be called as witnesses to testify against her for what she's done. Once again, don't try to theologize that and sanitize that. That should be awkward and uncomfortable and painful. Adultery, unfaithfulness in marriage is a horrible, painful thing. And the tragedy is that you and I live in a culture that not only accepts it, but it almost glorifies it. There are movies where the unfaithful spouse is the hero. There are television shows where to lure someone away from their partner is literally part of the game. That ought to be sickening to us. But we get a little bit callous to the culture around us. See, the culture as a whole says, if you're not getting what you think you need, if you're not getting what makes you the most happy, if you don't feel like you're the best version of yourself around this particular person, then whatever vows you've made, whatever promises you've made, you ought to feel free to go and find it in someone else. See, don't forget that right in the middle of this story is a faithful husband who's been abandoned by a woman that he did nothing but love. And on a larger scale, God says, that is exactly what Israel has done to me. They have fled from my faithfulness. I'm going to read a longer passage from the book of 2 Kings, chapter 17. Historically, it's written as Israel is preparing to fall. And it gives kind of this picture of the state of Israel. And there's going to be a slide up there that shows a picture on it that won't make much sense at first. But it's going to highlight one of the aspects of that. 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 9, this is what God says about the people of the nation of Israel before Assyria comes in and wipes them out. He says, They have set for themselves sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places, just as the nations did when the Lord had carried away into exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Israel is steeped in idolatry. Every hill, every high place, they had formed idols and worshipped them on these places. And yet, the Lord warned Israel and Judah through his prophets and through every seer saying, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments, keep my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen 
but they stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he made with their fathers and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and they became vain. They went after the nations that surrounded them concerning the Lord, concerning those things that the Lord had commanded them not to do. They forsook all of the commandments of the Lord their God and they made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served by all... It says they made two calves. And again, this is talking to Israel. Remember, where was Israel supposed to worship? The whole nation. Israel, Judah, if you were a child of Abraham, if you were in fellowship with God, where were you supposed to worship? Jerusalem, one place. Where were you supposed to bring your sacrifices? The temple, one place. But when Israel and Judah separated, the first king of the northern kingdom said, I really don't want people going back to Jerusalem. I'm going to make two alternate worship sites, one at Bethel and this one here at Dan. What you see right here is the outline of where Israel's altar in the northern part of the kingdom was. It's about as far north as you can go in the kingdom. And there, on something that would have approximated that altar, they offered sacrifices to what they would call Yahweh, their God. They made a golden calf and they called it God. As long as we keep the right name, as long as we do the same things, that's got to be good enough. That's what Israel had lowered themselves to. In reading on in 2 Kings, once you start to slide in worship, it doesn't take long before you go all the way down. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 17. They made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire. And they practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. They made their sons and daughters pass through fire. Israel went so far as to participate in childhood sacrifices, burning their children on pagan altars. They practiced divination and enchantments. They sold themselves. Now that language should sound like Hosea. All of that idolatry was them selling themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Despite the provision, despite the faithfulness, despite the care of God, they pursued idols in the same way that Gomer pursued other men. That's the charge. And so here's the consequence. Starting in verse 3, God lays out what he is going to do. And he's going to make a number of I will statements in the rest of this. Um, And that's important. We have to understand that choices have consequences. We have to see that when Israel is going through a terribly painful stretch after this, it's not because somehow they didn't pick the right king or didn't give the right military strategy. What is happening is coming from the Lord himself. Uh, They're not isolated random things. This is all playing out exactly like God says it will. And verse 3 says, Lest I strip her naked and expose her as on on the day she was born. Now we know like back from Genesis chapter 3, there's this connection with nakedness and shame. Uh, So some people think that this is the idea of God putting them to shame. And I think that they will certainly be shamed, but there's more to it than that. He's talking about exposing them as on the day they were born. And, And if you read through kind of other prophetic writings like Ezekiel chapter 16, he talks about just the helpless nature of Israel when they came into existence. Remember, God didn't choose Israel because they were a great people who could do great things for a great God. God chose Israel when Israel was just Abraham, old and barren. 
He, he reiterated, and he really drives that covenant promise home at the foot of Sinai when this is a people of freed slaves. No king, no land. Uh, God did not choose Israel the mighty. God chose Israel the weak and the helpless. God chose Israel the squirming newborn infant. Why? So that he could demonstrate his greatness and his power and everything that he did for them. And now he's saying, I am going to do exactly what you ought to be pictured as. I'm going to show you uh, as naked and exposed and completely helpless because that is what you are without me. See, and rather than promising prosperity or making them productive and making them plentiful for obedience. He says, I will also make her like a wilderness, like a desert land and slay her with thirst. Because of their rejection, because of their rebellion, Israel is going to be cut off from God's provision. And once again, we have to tie this back to where we've read before. That's why we started in Leviticus 26 at the beginning of this whole series, blessings for obedience. What did God say? When you're obedient, I will give you rains in their season. I'll make the land yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. That's Leviticus 26.4. But if they're disobedient, Leviticus 26.19, I'll make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly for your land will not yield its produce and the trees will not yield their fruit. Again, this is all grounded in the faithfulness of God doing exactly what he said he would when the people pursue either obedience or rebellion. The overarching failure of Israel is God is going to prove that they are an unfaithful people. It's at the heart of that picture of idolatry and adultery. Like Gomer, who leaves her husband and pursues the affections of all the other men, Israel has run after the gods of all the nations around them. But like sin does, one failure typically breeds additional failure. One sin opens the doorway to other sin. And so Israel's only charge is not that she's unfaithful. We're now going to be shown an additional charge in that Israel is ungrateful. Israel is not only an unfaithful people, Israel is an ungrateful people. Look at verse 3. The second half of verse 3, I'll make her a desert land and slay her with thirst. Verse 4, also I will have no compassion on her children because they're children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. One of the ways that Israel's shame is on display is how she credits her idols with her provision. This is the picture of a woman who has abandoned her husband because of what someone else can provide. The better house, the better car, the better financial outlook better earrings, better purses, more compliments, whatever it might be. It's the one who seeks a better situation somewhere else. And how often we see that reflected again in our own culture. Uh, marriage broken because of the promise of something better. But it's not just that Israel left for something better. The real tragedy here is that Israel credited the good things that she had to those idols around him. Bread and water? Israel have food and provision? Well, she credited the God of the harvest. Wool, flax, the flocks were prospering. Israel would credit the God of the animals. Rains in their season, Israel would credit the gods of the storms like all the nations around them. And that's really at the very heart of their worship of that idol that we call Baal. It was a fertility god. 
not just fertility in the sense of human fertility, although that was certainly part of that cultic worship, but fertility in the sense that he was a storm god. He sent the rains. He made fertile fields. And so now when Israel brings in her harvest that Yahweh had promised, she credits the false gods of the nation around her. But what did God say? Obey me, and who sends the rain? He does. Obey me, and who prospers your fields and your flocks? He said that he would. And they took that promise of God, and they turned it into idolatrous worship. And we say, how foolish. We say, how foolish of Israel to credit some inanimate man-made object with the good blessings of God. And it was foolish. But you and I need to be very, very careful because we are prone to do the very same thing. My retirement is secure because I worked hard for 40 years. I made wise investments, so my 401k will distribute what I need for the rest of my life. My free time is mine because I've earned it. My kids turned out great because I am a wise parent who is able to produce reasonable human beings. And on and on it goes. We're very, very willing to memorize the verses that say that all good things come down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow, but we're very, very quick to take the credit for those good things. We run to God in times of crisis. But when things are stable and secure, very, very often it's because of what I've done. And that might be more subtle idolatry, but it's no less idolatry than what Israel had done. Because after all of our faithfulness, where does provision ultimately come from? It comes from God. Israel is going to bear the consequences for their ungrateful heart, because at their core, it's not just ungrateful. At their core, an ungrateful heart is a heart that refuses to worship. A heart of ingratitude has no room for worshiping the God who gives all good and necessary things. And on the other hand, consistent gratitude to God is is a a place where idolatry can't exist. If I'm continually thankful to God, there's no room to credit anything else. But Israel had no worship for God, no credit to God for what they had. So look at what God is going to do. Look at verse 6. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I'll build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. God is going to frustrate their plans and block their ways. And maybe your mind drifted to the other side of that promise like mine did in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We've heard that before. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will do what? Direct your paths or make your paths straight. These intertextual things matter because then it should not surprise us that when Israel refuses to listen to God, when Israel leans only on their own understanding, when Israel refuses to acknowledge him, then it makes sense that the Lord would not make their path straight, but would throw up frustrations and barriers in front of them. More than that, look at verse 7. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them and will not find them. Those things that she once pursued to meet her needs, those things that she once chased after, 
to fill up her desires, they're going to vanish in front of her. Like a wind that she can never catch. Like a person that she can never track down, all her pursuits are going to prove vain and empty and fruitless. And she's going to come to a place of desperation, and this is what she's going to say eventually. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. We say, well, that sounds like a reasonable conclusion. And it is. At the place of desperation, that is really the only thing that Israel can conclude. You know what? It was better in the old days. It was better when we were worshiping. And a couple of very, very important things to see here. And the first is that that is exactly what all of this was designed to do. Remember back in Leviticus 26, God went through cycle after cycle of, if you don't listen, then I will do this. Every one of those sections was designed to call them back. You are going the wrong way. This tragedy is coming. Maybe that will turn you. Stop. Listen. Turn. Repent. Look, discipline is difficult, but it is a gift. Every time God disciplines his people, it is a gracious gift as he calls them back to himself, calls them back to the blessing of obedience. And that really leads to the second important thing here, and that is obedience is better. It's so easy for us to fall in line with thinking of here are the rules and I got to keep the rules because I got to keep the rules. I have to do the thing because God says to do the thing, so I guess I better do the thing so I don't get squished. And look, God is holy and demands our worship. God deserves every ounce of obedience simply because of who he is. That is absolutely true. God demands and deserves worship from all of his creation, but sometimes we forget that obedience is better. Look, that is hard for me as a dad. It's very easy for me to say, do the right things because those are the rules and you're expected to do them. How much more effective is it when I demonstrate to my children that obedience is better? That when you do what is right, life is better. Because when you live according to what God has called you to, you begin to see the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are better things. It is a better way to live life. Proverbs says the way of the sinner is hard. And through these, God is demonstrating tangibly over and over from generation to generation to Israel that your life is hard because you consistently and relentlessly pursue sin. Turn and do something else. It is better. The, the tragedy is not just that they're running away from God, but they are running headlong away from all of the blessings that he promised them. And so they're going to come to the place where they would say, it was better then than it is now, but here's the tragedy, they don't change. They hate the discipline because it hurts. They're able to acknowledge that it was better then than it is now, but they don't turn. It's like a child who gets the spanking and gets angry instead of changing. Look at verse 8 through 10. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. 
Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time, my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. I'll uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. Because Israel will not see the provision of God, he's going to remove it. And that interplay, look at it there in verse 8 and verse 9, is heartbreaking. God says Israel is so stubborn and so ignorant and so blinded by her sin that she doesn't even know that those were mine. It's my oil, my wool, my flax, my provision that I lavished on her. He didn't just kind of like stingily hand out these things to Israel. He poured blessings out upon them. He says that was mine to give to you. And tragically, not only do they not recognize it, but they take what he provided and they use it in pagan worship. God gives them food and they praise false gods. God gives them flocks and they sacrifice them on demonic idols. So God is going to uncover them. He's going to expose their failure and their wretchedness and their helplessness. And he says, and no one's going to save them. Why? Because the nations don't care. And because the gods aren't real. Because everything Israel has put her hope in is going to vanish like a puff of smoke because it is nothing. They have built their security on nothing. And God says, everyone's going to see it. Court is in session and Israel stands condemned. The people are idolatrous, they are faithless, and their failure to worship has also made them ungrateful. They take the gifts of God and they thank idols for them. They use the gifts that he gave to make idols and to worship gods made with their own hands. How could Israel do that? How could they possibly think that they would get away with that? And that kind of leads into the final reason here. And that is God is going to demonstrate that Israel, they're a hypocritical people. They're not only unfaithful, They're not only ungrateful, but they're hypocritical. Much of this overlaps with what he's actually already said, but there's an additional charge here that I think we need to see. Look at verse 11. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. That sounds weird. (laughs) What you need to understand is those are the regular and prescribed pieces of Israel's worship to God. Israel was still celebrating those things at the very same time that she was worshiping the idols of the nations around her. God gave the people feasts during the year. He gave them the feast of Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits and trumpets and tabernacles and the day of atonement. And he said, these are the appointed times of Yahweh. These are my times. These weren't the people's times. These weren't the people's parties. These were his times. They were his times to drive the people back, to remember what he had done in the past, and to drive them forward toward his continual faithfulness and provision in the future. Graciously, God gives a forgetful people constant reminders throughout their year of who he is and what he's done. Not only all her feasts, but her new moons. They celebrated, they used a lunar calendar, and there were new moon sacrifices every month. Her Sabbaths, there were sacrifices and obedience every week. Every week, God gave them a day to rest, a refreshment, to celebrate His goodness and His provision. Every seven years, that was built into the land as a whole. Every 50 years, it was built into a major celebration. 
and the implication is that Israel said, all right, we can still do the things. Because as long as we do the things, what can God say? What could God possibly do as long as we still do what he told us to do? And so what happens is Yahweh becomes not hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh becomes one of many. But God is holy. He is distinct and set apart, and he will share his glory with no one. There are no times that do not belong to him. There's no season that is not his. There's no sacrifice that's not his. It all belongs to him. And again, this is a recurring theme in the Minor Prophets. Israel is content to do the religious things of Israel right alongside the pagan practices of the nations around them. And they forget that God knows the heart. They forget that God is not fooled by the externals, but that God sees right to the heart of the worshiper. And that remains true, by the way. God is not fooled by Sunday attendance, closed eyes, and raised hands. God sees directly to the heart. So what's the consequence for their hypocrisy? Well, God's going to put an end to the false worship, but look at verse 11. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. God says, I'm going to put an end to all of that. Not only will he destroy the northern kingdom, but he will remove the temple from the southern kingdom. So he will put an absolute end to all of that. And look at verse 12. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. And he says, okay, so he's going to remove the vines and the fig trees. And that sounds, again, like he's removing their provision from them. And it is. But this is another one of those places where I want to kind of highlight this because this is an important link back to God's promises in the past and his promises in the future. That idea of the vine and the fig tree, they were kind of used as symbolic of God's abundant provision for the people. All the way back in the law in Deuteronomy 8, verse 8 and 9, when God says, this is the kind of land I am bringing you into. It's land where you have vines and fig trees that continually produce more than you need. When Solomon is ruling over the land, and this is Solomon before he turned aside and his heart chased after all the other women, this is Solomon at the beginning of his reign when he was wise, when he was powerful, when he was dedicated to the Lord. In 1 Kings 4.20, this is what it says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Does that sound familiar? Hosea 1 picked up on the restoration of that promise. Again, they don't come out of nowhere. And then in 1 Kings 4.25, it says, So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba. That vine and the fig tree are a picture of Israel dwelling securely and prosperously in the land. And if you miss that, not only are you going to miss it when it comes up over and over and over and over in the prophets, but you're going to miss it in places like Micah 4.4 where God says that's coming again. So the provision is going to be removed, and God says that he's going to destroy the vines and the fig trees. The beasts of the field will devour them, those beasts that Leviticus said he would keep away when they were faithful and that would ravage the land when they were rebellious. In verse 13, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord like a woman seducing a man who isn't her husband, who dresses up in the best that she has, who puts on the perfume, who wears the earrings and the makeup, and who looks for an adulterous encounter 
Israel dressed herself up for the nations around her. And in all her preparation, she forgot me. And now the Lord's going to remind them. He's going to bring to mind what they've forgotten, that it has all belonged to him. That all of it is his. It's a tough passage. <laughs> we go through the Minor Prophets, that's going to happen at times. We see long passages that deal with judgment. And here's the thing, we need to be reminded that there is a righteous judge. That God is holy and that sin is serious. We have to make sure that this isn't just a story about a people in a land far away at a time long ago. This isn't just the story of Israel's failure. It absolutely is the story of Israel's failure. This is written to a particular and specific people at a specific time with specific warnings and specific promises. But Paul reminds us that these things are written for our benefit because sin is our problem too. The reality is that we're not better, we're not different than Israel. We want what satisfies us, and we'll do whatever we need to to get it. Here's how else we're like Israel. Israel's restoration is not going to come because she finally wises up. It's not going to come because she replaces a bad king with a good king. It's not going to come because Israel institutes social reform. It's not going to come because Israel restores her army. It's going to come because God is gracious and changes their hearts. Israel's restoration will come because God radically changes their hearts and moves them into the submission of the Messiah. You and I don't experience restoration because the righteous judge has a lapse in judgment or because sin is less serious or because we're somehow smarter and can argue our way out of the condemnation. You and I will stand before that same righteous judge who judged Israel. And you and I, right now, while it is still called today, are called to determine who will plead your case. Either you will stand before the judge of all the universe and plead your own goodness that will always fall short. Or you will stand and you will plead the blood of Christ who died in your place, who served the sentence that should have fallen to us, and who then covered us not only with his innocence but with his perfection. That great exchange, the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust. And here's a wonderful promise. First John chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone sins, and we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Like that courtroom drama that plays out, we have the perfect advocate on our side. And Hebrews 7.25 says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. There's a righteous judge. And sin is serious. And God is just and holy. But God is merciful in that he has provided one who will take our place. Although we don't want to, 
I think it would be good for us to think of a few things as we move through our week, maybe with regard to our own sin. First of all, it's good to ask the question, where do we pursue others? Israel was guilty of placing someone else on the throne, of following after gods made of wood and stone rather than the God of Israel. And we don't like to think of our sin in terms of idolatry, much less adultery, but we need to think carefully, where have we put someone in God's place? It's certainly not an idol on your mantle. That would surprise me greatly. (laughs) But what are the idols in our lives? What takes our time, our emotion, our attention, our affection? What causes us to produce the fruits of the flesh rather than the fruits of the Spirit? Is it your job? Your marriage? Your children? Your reputation? Your comfort and convenience? And here's the dangerously deceptive thing. None of those things on their own, of course, are sinful. Work is God-given. Marriage and children are a gift. A good reputation is to be desired. And yet the moment one of those eclipses God in terms of priority in my life, it has become an idol no matter what I call it, no matter how I justify it. Second, we need to make sure that we give credit where credit is due. Israel was guilty of crediting everything other than God with their provision. And again, you and I can be prone to do the same thing in a whole bunch of subtle ways. I worked hard, so I get the paycheck that I deserve so I can pay the bills, so I can put my family in the best situation. And of course, we're called to work hard as under the Lord. That's not what we're talking about, but how quickly we forget that it is God who opens his hand and feeds creation. And so many places that we find stability and security and peace are are man-made and constructed by our own hands, and we see that as soon as they're pulled apart, peace runs. We need to remind ourselves that we are to be a grateful people because every good and perfect gift is from God. And finally, we need to evaluate where our own worship falls short. We need to think very carefully about doing the external right things for all the wrong heart motivations. Is it a good thing to be at church on Sunday? Absolutely it is. But God knows our hearts. Is it a good thing to sing the songs that we sing? Of course it is. But God knows our hearts. Is it a good thing to give? Is it a good thing to serve? Absolutely it is. But God knows our hearts. But we read passages for Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And we read that, and that becomes a verse about what our Bible does. Yea, Bible, it's good and powerful. And that is true. God's word does that. But understand that that is given in the context of a warning passage. God is not fooled. God knows the hearts of those that would draw near to him and profess to worship. And so the reminder is, as uncomfortable as it might be, did you worship today? Did I? Because God knows and God's not fooled by those things, but praise God that he is patient. 
even with stubborn and sinful people like us. Let's pray. Lord, we struggle to obey in so many ways. We're idolaters by nature. Lord, I pray that you would continue to refine us, to bring our sins to mind so that we might come to repentance and faith in you. Your discipline is painful for a time, but it's merciful. Your patience is undeserved, but it's kind. So Lord, help us to respond rightly to you, even today, to confess our sins and to be reminded of the beauty of your forgiveness and restoration. Amen.